Lewis Hamilton had to work to turn his 100th pole into victory in Spain. And after three wins in four rounds, momentum is with the defending champion. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and welcome to round four, the Spanish Grand Prix. For Heeltread.com, socks inspired by iconic cars. Use the code word STRATEGY for 10% off. Track position is king in Spain, but even when Lewis Hamilton dropped from pole to second behind the fast-starting Max Verstappen, it felt like it was only a matter of time before the Briton found his way back through. Hamilton had two early chances to get back past Verstappen, but Mercedes had its eye firmly on the long game. It aggressively and correctly stopped Hamilton twice, unleashing him to charge down and pass the Dutchman with six laps to spare. A consolation point for fastest lap softened the blow, but Verstappen had to admit that Red Bull Racing was just not on the pace this weekend. Could there have been any stopping Lewis Hamilton from claiming yet another Barcelona win? Let's find out with this week's guest. From GP Racing Magazine, it's Stuart Codling. Stuart, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. You know, good morning, good evening, of course, because you're in Australia and I'm in the UK and we're speaking to one another over the majesty of the internet. Uh, I hope it's as nice over there as it's, well, <laughs> it's sharing here. I hope it's nicer where you are than it is here. Uh, it's dark here, so it could be anything outside. Let's assume <laughs> that it's better, but we'll never know for sure. I'm pleased because the Spanish Grand Prix delivered a race that, well, okay, wasn't a classic, wasn't it? I feel like that's the asterisk we're putting after a lot of races, but did serve us something to talk about and something interesting, certainly in the context of this championship. And I've got to say, one of the better Spanish Grand Prix of recent years, I think. Oh, yeah. It was only a one cup of tea job uh, (laughs) for me. And that was right at the beginning. Uh, And I thought, you know, I I, I thought, oh, is is this too early for a tea? And (laughs) there there might only be one safety car period and it's going to be a while. So, yeah, I nipped off, made myself a cup of tea. And uh, so it would appear did Valtteri Bottas because he very much got caught napping at the restart. But, you know, we we could get into that uh, later on. Yeah, they didn't. They shouldn't have thought so much about tea, more about tyres for Valtteri Bottas's side of the garage. Look, let's start with the overall picture for this one. It is three wins from four for Lewis Hamilton. Strongest start to a year ever by technicality of a fastest point, a fastest lap point he got in Imola. The championship is still close. It's 14 points and got a very long season supposedly ahead of us still. But what are your feelings about where we are in this title fight now after four races, after what we saw in Spain, which as we, we've known over the, the last, well, for many years really for the Spanish Grand Prix, is a pretty good baseline kind of circuit to get a sense of the cars. Yeah, you know, when you consider that the prevailing narrative for the past couple of months has been that Mercedes is in trouble and Red Bull is in the ascendancy, for Lewis Hamilton to have three wins out of four, pretty extraordinary. And also this Grand Prix, uh, as, as you say, very often a bellwether for car performance over, on average over the course of the year because it's, it's the most representative track of the season in terms of corner uh, radiuses and duration and speeds. Um, hugely counterintuitive race. So normally the Spanish Grand Prix is very much a, a one-stop procession and track position is king. And here you have Lewis Hamilton doing a, a two-stopper and and making it work. So it was a bold strategy, but at the end of the day, um, it, it appears that 
Lewis continues to get better and better. And when you give him a bit of a job to do, he'll knuckle down and do it and and do it very well. Very well indeed. I noted Christian Horner afterwards purported that maybe Mercedes was all along during pre-season testing, just misleading everybody, sandbagging essentially, which to me seems a little bit ambitious considering what we saw from Mercedes in Bahrain, that first race of the season in particular. Admittedly, they have gotten stronger since then, but I think that's kind of the point. Mm. Is that a bit of an attempt, do you think, to soften the blow that Mercedes does seem to have done a, a quite a good job of catching up in the last couple of months and perhaps reflecting the fact that Red Bull hasn't really capitalised on these early races when it did seem for many of them that they should have had a bit of a decisive advantage. Yeah, that's that's massive spin from Christian Horner <laughs> and it's exactly what I expect from him. He knows that what, what he says is faithfully reported uh, across the internet these days and he's just trying to reframe the narrative because... You know, if, if if you if you view these early races through the prism of Red Bull supposedly being in the ascendancy, having the better car, etc., then losing uh, that many races it isn't really a good look. And basically, this race was snatched off the table by Mercedes. It it, it was there for Red Bull to win, but um, win it they did not. And and as as we dig down, we we will get into the reasons for that. And I I think. It was summed up most neatly over the team radio when Lewis Hamilton made his second pit stop and they just came on to Max and said, I'm afraid it's Hungary all over again, (laughs) referring to the 2019 Hungarian Grand Prix where Lewis was able to make a second stop and come back and attack Max because um, neither of their teammates was there behind them. uh, And there was a yawning gulf of space in which for Lewis to drop and, and pick up the pace and, and, set the lap times he needed to catch up. So there was space there. And just as Pierre Gasly was in absentia uh, in, in Hungary 2019, I'm afraid Sergio Perez did uh, what what I'm sure Ron Dennis would call a suboptimal <laughs> number two performance <laughs> matrix. <laughs> and, and just it, he, he wasn't there. The context of the teammate battle is something we'll definitely get onto in a second. Let's talk about this circuit and uh, the context of this season specifically. As we've talked about, uh, usually uh, quite a good bellwether race. Uh, It's normally one of those tracks where no one has any excuses to hide behind, given everyone knows it extremely well. In part, that's because we also do a lot of testing here. Pre-season testing is normally held here. Uh, Not this year, though, and maybe Mm. it's all a bit of a coincidence. But as you sort of said earlier, normally pretty straightforward one stop processional kind of race here though and maybe this is because we've got new tire constructions this year there have been some small aero changes this year or some massive ones and really unfair ones if you ask anyone at aston martin (laughs) but it does seem like there was a bit less certainty heading into this race it ended up being a two-stop race but a lot of drivers clung on to it a lot of teams clung on to the idea of being a one-stop until quite late in the grand prix was the answer all along not racing at a circuit at which we test so much? Did that play a part in producing a better race than usual here? Well, there is an argument for that, isn't there? Because we didn't spend six days in pre-season booting around this particular track on on the tyres that we're going to use. So there's obviously a, a relative lack of data compared with normal. So I'd, I'd say that's a compelling argument. It's It's difficult to say equivocally whether that is the case. But 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a point that's worth taking into consideration for sure. Our final point to set this one up, because if we want to look at that in the prism, I guess, of, of preparation levels being much less this year, considering there was no testing, and even in the context that practice is lessened this season as well, we've lost an hour of practice on a Friday. I think tyre selection kind of sums it up. Red Bull Racing used one of its two medium tyres in FP3 of all sessions. Imagine talking about free practice three on a podcast at mm. all. Uh, whereas Mercedes <laughs> kept both of them during a Saturday morning practice it meant mercedes had both of them to use in the race red bull had only one this proved well decisive really in the context of mercedes using that as its is winning strategy is it too much to say that was an error from red bull though again free practice three not something we normally talk about uh that they should have seen the medium tire more durable tire being key particularly for a car such as theirs that is pretty heavy on tire usage well this this is this is a, a, a little theory i've been working on um, obviously, there may we may see a convergence later in the season as more is learned about the characteristics of, of the tyre family. And, you know, we were on the C1, C2, C3 here. So tyres that have been used at previous rounds, so they're, they're building up a kind of a, a data bank of, of, of how these revised constructions work. What I think the effect of slicing half an hour off uh, FP1 and FP2 has been is is that the, the the track time is now less wasted, should we say? Or there's there's, there's it's made it it's it's put the onus on the teams to be more productive. And while FP1 to an extent does seem to be a session where there's not a huge amount of meaningful running. You know, they they're basically doing a bit of battering around installation laps on the hardest tires that they're not likely likely to race on testing aero stuff you see a lot of flovis by the time you get into fp2 that that is now not a session that anyone can afford to snooze through um not the teams um and definitely not the journalists you know you know if, if you remember long ago back when we used to go to races <laughs> and and there'd be track sessions on and you would see you'd you'd look around you in the media center and you'd see the the people who were hard at work logging each and every lap and working out averages and what tire compound the particular driver was on and trying to guesstimate fuel loads there were people who were just staring into space there were people who were <laughs> fart-assing around on Twitter. There were people, I mean, I'm mentioning no names here, but the ones who turn up at your desk and start blathering at you, asking if you've read their column, the the ones who like to tell you, the, rah, 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 this is what I think about prevailing things. Um, and those those people are now incredibly irrelevant because really F, FP2 and, and to a slightly lesser extent FP3 becoming really, really important sessions that, like I say, you, you can't doze through until the qualifying sims are in. You know, you, you really are seeing kind of the shape of the tyre strategy developing through those sessions. And you see... Obviously, you have to filter out um, different run plans and sometimes teams have a technical problem or they are actually making setup adjustments. But generally speaking, if, if a team has a clean run through FP2 and FP3 and you see what they've achieved, you can see kind of what they were driving at. And to sort of drill down a little bit, if you look back at Portimao, you see Alpine had pretty strong qualifying 
decent race performance. They had such a clean FP2 and FP3, and you saw they did different run plans. They had drivers on opposing tyres throughout those sessions, so they were gathering so much data um, through those sessions, and and you could really see their their race plan take shape. And so, yeah, that's 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 an hour of your Friday and an hour of your Saturday that is worth investing if you're interested in Formula One. There's a lot to unpack in all of those sessions and only so much time to do it, I suppose. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the reason some of the teams even were caught uh, on the wrong foot. Mm. Let's look at the race, how that played out. Lewis Hamilton, as we talked about, lost uh, track position almost immediately into the first corner and often for a Spanish Grand Prix, that's almost your race done. Mm. Wasn't the case this time around. Uh, we saw pretty quickly after, I guess, the race settled into a little bit of a rhythm, he was able to follow Verstappen pretty closely. And there is a little bit of an irony in the way that the tyres work, the undercut being very powerful, that sometimes running second does give you a bit of an advantage in the sense that you can react, but the guy ahead of you can't. But that said, are you surprised Verstappen opted to cover the Hamilton undercut so early, or you know, relatively early, rather than play the longer game, given that Red Bull does seem to have, as did play out, uh, a tyre over-usage, if you like, does use its tyres a little bit more aggressively. Was this a bit of a trap that Verstappen fell into? I think it was. And, you know, Mercedes now are getting on top of where their car is in terms of its performance. And I think they've they've made a deliberate choice to try and make that car easier on its tyres. And at some of the races at the beginning of this season, that was a weakness just because the ambience were a lot cooler, the weather was not possibly favourable towards that sort of thing. It made it difficult for them to get the tyres into the operating window, particularly on the rear axle. Um in Spain, where the conditions were, I, I hate to be British and keep talking about the weather, but this is actually useful and important. Um, I, I think that's it was not just a more representative track; it was more representative in terms of the ambience the the teams are likely to experience, particularly now that Canada is gone, which is a race that sometimes you know you it's the middle of June, but you would think that it was December. Um, so yeah, they they they're kind of aware of what their car is capable of and they're adjusting their run plans to suit. And that's something that Red Bull needs to get on top of rather than treating each race as a as a sprint. Certainly by, well, let me have a look, you know, the, the fir- first round of pit stops, instead of responding directly to Max coming in, Lewis waited another one, two, three, four, five laps, uh, four laps. Um, so that that barely counted as a, as a response that was mercedes sticking to plan a you know we, we hear a lot of team radio people saying yeah we're on we're on plan c now we're on plan f you can think how many, how many plans how, how many plans have you actually got in the tank you've got a whole sheaf of plans <laughs> I, I think mercedes were on plan a throughout and lewis losing out to max at the first corner didn't necessarily disrupt that and you saw actually Lewis was less vigorous in fighting that than he had been at Imola. In Imola, he went clattering over the curbs because he was so desperate to retain track position at the, at the first corner. Here, he sort of saw Max chop across him, thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fight this and end up taking what we might call the stroll trajectory over <laughs> Turns one and two. The, the stroll trajectory sounds like a rejected Robert Ludlum novel <laughs> title, doesn't it? But uh, um, 
you know, he, he just he just let that one go, inadvertently causing his teammate to check up and get passed by Charles Leclerc. But um, that's that's a whole other can of worms we're going to have to open in a second. But yeah, I, I think they, they were able to stay on plan A throughout. And then when Lewis made his second pit stop and was able to, you know, they he was able to use that extra set of medium tyres that he had at his disposal. I think it was then that Red Bull realised that, they'd been checkmated and that they couldn't respond to that and that all they could do was let Max stay out there and just see if he could keep the tyres alive. And as, as, as we saw, that didn't happen. The supreme confidence of not taking advantage of Verstappen's slow first pit stop. It was around four seconds uh, because he came in a little bit unexpectedly. There was a miscommunication. Mm. He thought he was meant to come in. It was meant to be the lap later. They only just had the tyres ready. I mean, that really does illustrate that confidence, doesn't it? Are you surprised, notwithstanding there was this plan A, wouldn't have been completely incompatible with stopping only four laps earlier, considering Hamilton's middle stint was quite short, that they didn't take the opportunity to take track position, or was, ironically enough, running second actually quite valuable in the sense that they could always catch the leader by surprise? Yeah, I think there's there's an element of Lewis putting Max under pressure, particularly towards the end of that stint, <clears throat> and it it did it did seem a little bit like a panic move, didn't mm. it? That last minute lunge into the pits, and as you say, it, it had had the team sprinting around, and had had it, it it was a question of one or two seconds, wasn't it? You saw the the guy who had the the left uh, left rear wheel um, had to wait for Max to come past him, and then he had to run around behind the car after it had. As it was coming to a halt to get into position, and it was that which um, caused the stop to be so long. It, had they had one or two more seconds, he'd have been able to cross the pit apron and be ready and not have to wait until Max had gone past him. So, really, really is a story of fine margins. Question is, would Max have lost that much uh, speed by staying out for another lap? It's difficult to say. You know, would would he have been vulnerable to an overtaking manoeuvre by Lewis at the end of that main straight? Lewis was close enough to maybe try a DRS pass. Once again, it's, it's Mercedes kind of finding Red Bull's weak spots and just probing them gently and putting them under pressure to see whether they'll crack. And certainly yesterday they did that. It is really interesting, isn't it? Because that's it felt like that's been Red Bull's role against Mercedes for the last couple of years, not really having the car to mm. challenge, but occasionally being the team to poke and prod Mercedes. And there's been this idea that Mercedes is the team that doesn't react that well under pressure, I guess, because they've had a number of, or not a, several high-profile gaffes, I suppose you could say, in the pit lane. Oh, oh yeah, head farts is what I'd call them. <laughs> they, they weren't gaffes. They, they, were, they were totally, totally catastrophic head farts. And, and as you say, yeah, Red, Red, Red Bull have been able to They've been the arch producer of Mercedes head farts over the past few years. And yet here we have Mercedes, after only a couple of rounds, or in only a couple of rounds, seemingly being very comfortable in the position of the team that is now poking and prodding Red Bull. Is it so? I mean, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, should we? I mean, Mercedes has dominated this series for years, even if they've dominated at times by so much they've had virtually no competition. Uh, should we be at all surprised that they do so well on the other side of the coin? Yeah, and yeah, you you could also say that the 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 failures, the the, the catastrophic head farts are are kind of rare, and un, they're so unusual generally. Uh, across the great landscape of Mercedes competence over the past seven or eight million years, uh, it feels like in the, uh, the hybrid era, that actually, 
you know, you, you tend to notice the outliers because they are so obvious. So, you know, may, may, mm. maybe it, we are being slightly unfair to them uh, in, in saying they're prone to head farts, but there's, there's no argument against their race strategy this year. They do seem to have found either another level or I don't know whether how much of it is dialogue with Lewis because Lewis is so sharp on strategy. He's, he's not a, a driver who passively is given and or expects to be spoon fed uh, a, a race strategy anymore. He questions either before the race or during the race, whether they're doing the right thing. And, and I think that process of asking questions and, and challenging the strategists actually does generally improve the strategy as a whole, because it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. You know, when, when Lewis is wrong and just chuntering because he he feels like he's been given a bad hand the strategists are able to point out to him well actually no this is going to work out for the best sometimes lewis has chuntered and actually he's been right and the strategists have been wrong and because they're clever mathematicians and, and smart people they're able to see where they've gone wrong and refine their own processes let's look back into that middle part of the race we can see hamilton applying a lot of pressure to verstappen just before his second stop it does look like he might have a chance to pass him on the track and that was one of the moments where he said for for a brief moment he doubted whether that was going to be the right strategy given he seemed to have the advantage then and there uh, we know after that stop uh, as you said the radio message to max verstappen was this is going to be hungry all over again uh, it was clear at that point uh, what the likely outcome was going to be. It was only a matter of seeing if it was going to get done in that amount of time. But at what point in that middle stint was this race kind of effectively over? Was the race salvageable for Red Bull Racing before Hamilton pulled the trigger on that second stop? I'm, I'm not convinced that um, there was any way back uh, af- after he pulled the trigger from that second stop. I think they knew once once that happened, I think they knew that they'd been played and that all they could do was basically dig their heels in, try and protect track position. And once uh, Lewis overtook Max, all they could do was see what the gap to Bottas was, whether they had enough time to to pit uh, Max and just go for that fastest lap point. It has to be said that when when you've just been relieved of, of a race lead and you have to pit to try and get the fastest lap point. Um, that really is the consolation prize. I don't know if you're familiar with the venerable British quiz show 321, where um, losing contestants stood a chance of winning a dustbin. Um, <laughs> that's basically that. No, I'm not, but I will look it up after this. I can assure you of that. Uh, Absolutely consolation. That's the only way we can describe it. Now, part of the reason there was no ability for Verstappen to cover Hamilton here was that he didn't have that extra set of mediums, as we said, only available at his disposal was the hards, which no one wanted to use and no one did, or an extra set of the new softs, which he did use for the fastest lap late in the race when when the position on the track, a gap in the traffic became available. It's... Obviously, track position being important here, it would have been extremely bold to either preempt that second stop, that would almost certainly have never happened, but also still to stop immediately after Hamilton to try and keep position on the track with a tyre that was unlikely to last to the end. Is there going to be a point in that season where a, a, a more desperate strategy, let's call it, using the soft tyre for what would have been around 24 laps, would come into the playbook here? Should Red Bull have given that a crack or was it just never likely enough to be pulled off? I, I think it was never going to work. And I, I suppose, you know, we've, we've, we've mocked Christian Horner's spin and we've, we've been a little bit churlish about Red Bull in this podcast, but credit where it's due, they could easily have panicked and brought Max in at that point and just put whatever tyres they had left on. 
but they, they didn't and they made a conscious decision not to and the way it panned out that was actually the right thing to do because there are a whole other set of drivers who pitted at that point so looking through my notes what we had um yeah um stroll uh vettel and raikkonen obviously kimmy started on the mediums and got on quite an aggressive alternate strategy of doing a long stint on mediums and then an, another fairly long stint on the softs at the end, probably with a view to hoping that the, the track would rubber in and be gentler on the softs with with declining fuel loads. And that proved not to be the case. Um, all three of those drivers started to slide backwards in the final laps. So you, you can quite easily hypothesise that if Red Bull had brought uh, Max in uh, at the same time as Lewis made that second stop, then he would have suffered very, very dramatic uh, drop off in tyre performance in the closing laps and in essence uh, been in the same boat, but without that extremely valuable point for fastest lap. Now, as a final point on this battle for the lead before we look at some of the other battles down the field, the, the parallels between the 2019 Hungarian Grand Prix are obvious. We've talked about them already, this idea of Hamilton chasing down Verstappen uh, towards the end of the race. But there is that second reason, as you touched on as well, which is that Red Bull has lacked the second driver in a position to to block that more aggressive strategy. It's allowed Hamilton on both of these occasions to make a, a somewhat unexpected second stop and then unleash that pace and catch up to him. Perez wasn't in position. He qualified poorly, had an all right race to recover a couple of places, but never got close enough really after the leaders sprinted away in that first stint to play a role. Valtteri Bottas, despite being off the pace in this race as well, after being caught behind Charles Leclerc, was at least just close enough that Verstappen, even if he had the ability to, couldn't really respond to Hamilton that second stop. At what point is it going to become difficult for Sergio Perez? We've seen that transition from up-and-coming driver to something of an unwanted teammate at <laughs> Red Bull for the last couple of years. What happens to Perez here? Uh, it's tricky. I suppose... The, what what he's got going for him is that there's no one else really who Red Bull could immediately promote to that position since they seem to have given up on Pierre Gasly. So there's there's, there's no one who I could see who's being ready to fill that space. And it does seem like uh, Yuki Tsunoda's star is diminishing slightly as he flounders on track and starts moaning that the team isn't giving him the the right equipment. So, um, you know, negative internal PR just starting to look a little bit weak. So now point one is who would you replace him with? Or if we're going to not end a sentence with a preposition, <laughs> with whom would you replace him? And is 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 it too far? Is is he too far gone or is he just getting used to the mm -hmm. car? There there is an argument to say that once he's got on top of the car and it remains a, a fairly tricky car to drive there is a possibility he might be able to qualify better. And he is doing a slightly better job in qualifying than his, his predecessors. Mm. And he's certainly racing pretty strongly, but you know, it's what was he eighth on eighth on the grid mm. behind Ricardo. So behind, behind Leclerc, Ocon, Sainz, Ricardo, you know, you, you could understand him being behind Bottas, but he was at least four places behind where he should have been. And then once you get stuck into the first lap and if you lose positions over the first in the first lap then you know you on a on a track like this where track position remains king if you don't have a convenient uh gulf of space behind you in which to pit mm. and and charge through that that consigns you to a very tricky race and we saw particularly with with Leclerc and Bottas once once Bottas had been 
in effect mugged by Charles Leclerc on on the first lap. He, he said he didn't even see him coming. The he he just sort of floundered behind Leclerc while Max and Lewis took off into the distance, and very quickly he, in effect, relieved himself of any strategic flexibility he might have had and the same thing happened with Perez you know he was pratting around in in the lower regions of the top 10 fighting people like Ricardo who's someone who is not going to get past in a million years because Daniel Ricardo doesn't give up positions easily that's definitely going to be a narrative over the course of this year not only for Perez but of course for Bottas who is out of contract well they're both out of contract aren't they Mm. so we'll see how that unfolds in the fight for the championship let's look at that midfield fourth Charles Leclerc did pretty much the maximum he could uh, to finish fourth uh, just ahead of Sergio Perez, just behind Valtteri Bottas. He gained a couple of positions off the line. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo finished fifth behind Perez after defending for much of the race, and Carlos Sainz undercut past Esteban Ocon to finish behind Ricciardo. Let's talk about Ocon, though, in particular, and Alpine a little bit more generally. Both of those drivers, particularly Ocon, made it to the end of the race, trying something a little bit different. Ocon, one of the few drivers to do the race in only one stop. On lap 23 as well is when he stopped, off the soft, onto the medium uh he had to run 42 laps on mediums which by the end of the race were extremely second hand he lost a couple of positions in the final laps uh is it worth and let's talk about alonso just briefly as well because he tried something similar but he ultimately did make the second stop and couldn't salvage any points both of these cars started in the top 10 and ocon started quite highly in the top 10 as well he's been doing quite well is there cause for this team to have just tried to secure some points, considering they've had a relatively luck, 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 lackluster start to the season, rather than try to be ambitious and, and almost throw all of it away? Yeah, lackluster. Difficult word to pronounce. Even more <laughs> difficult to be, isn't it? And certainly disappointing to be lackluster. And Yes, and lacking in luster, for sure. Um, I think o- Ocon sent his race south by losing two positions, uh, on on the at the first corner, and that whole kind of mid mid to late top ten gaggle, the the positions were in effect defined by the the first few laps. So it's it's weird that we're talking about the battle for the lead being very unusual for the Spanish Grand Prix, but pretty much everyone behind them was classic Spanish Grand Prix mm-hmm. track position off the start dictated what what then happened. So yeah, o- Ocon dug his own grave by losing two places uh, first corner ricardo was was one of the drivers to overtake him R- ricardo picked up two places that defined went on to define his race although he had, he had to do a little bit of work and then yeah the the, the one stop strategy i i could just kind of feel that alpine were a little bit late to the party in realizing that a one stopper wasn't on when you look at let me let me look let me fetch out my telescope and um <laughs> Uh, and and scroll down to the lower reaches of my lap chart lap 61 of 66 um alonso in effect capitulates and mm-hmm. says to the team look these tires are done i need new ones and this 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 race isn't going anywhere he had already dropped from 10th you know he he was um, I think, as, as I said on the Autosport podcast, it fell off faster than uh, Richard Chamberlain in the Towering Inferno. <laughs> I don't know if that uh, uh, that reference would be lost or appreciated by old mate Fernando, but you could only ask. You could only dead ask him. <laughs> well, do you know, he might be a fan of the disaster movie genre. <laughs> well, I, I, actually, I didn't even mind that one with Michael Caine and the Killer Bees. <laughs> 
That is a good. Uh, it's a good question. I don't know again how receptive he'd be, but I'd like to think he would be a fan of disaster films. Absolutely. And one day, perhaps one will make one about him. <laughs> I'm just not sure he'd be financing it. Uh, on the inverse, if if Alpine was the team to to notice too late that a second stop was going to be the way to go in this race, considering so many teams went into it thinking that, as usual, one stop would be the safest way forward. Aston Martin was completely the opposite. They seemed to think that this would they, they cottoned on very early that two stops was going to be the way to go, and they stopped. Lance Stroll and Sebastian Vettel on laps 39 and 38, just after Kimi Raikkonen, coincidentally into their detriment, made his one stop from medium to soft, as we touched on. Unfortunately, that was no good for Sebastian Vettel in particular, because he got stuck behind the slower Raikkonen, couldn't find his way past. And okay, we could argue that had the strategy been better executed, there might have been more on the table for this team. But even then, you know, neither car at any point this weekend really showed inspiring pace. Is this just where Aston Martin exists now, just outside the points? Are they less last year's Pink Panthers and more just a green Minardi? <laughs> That's quite mean, actually, but not hugely wrong. <laughs> um, certainly, it's looking like that strategy of... Uh, was it a strategy or was it a tactic? Now, there's 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 something we could chew over. The, <laughs> the, the decision to, in effect, clone the 2019 Mercedes um, initially looked clever, and then when they struggled to get the most out of the concept, it looked a little bit less clever. When they finally won a race with it, it started to look clever again. I just now wonder if that relative lack of experience they have with the kind of the low rate concept of, of the Mercedes has held them back in terms of developing that car. I mean, I, I don't really want to get into the the whole he says, she says of, of whether um, the technical regulations really were shaped with a view to pegging Mercedes back and Aston were collateral. I, I personally, I think that's twaddle. I think there's been too many changes made for there to be, for you to actually point the finger and say, well, actually that change has harmed the team, a particular team more than others. Cause we're looking at not just a cut in the floor, but also the elimination of the floor slots and changes to the, the, the brake vents and also the diffuser fences. It's an awful lot of changes and this, the aerodynamics is a precise science. You change one thing and you measure it. And then, and only then, if you can repeat that observation, can you say, oh, actually changing this thing has had this effect decisively. When you have, when you take lots and lots of changes and you see something happening, you can't really say this must have happened as a result of trimming a bit off the floor. It could be something else. So with that rather long-winded thinking, um, I don't think that, Mercedes and Aston were necessarily a target. I'm sure the FIA and F1 will be quite pleased of greater competition. And it seems that a lot of the teams are innovating in that floor area. We've seen cutouts, which also works counterintuitively. They've moaned about having bits cut out of the floor. Now they're cutting out even bigger bits <laughs> to set up vortices to try and claw back some of that lost performance. So I, I think we're going to see by the end of the year as as the rule makers predicted, that lost performance will be clawed back. So, yeah, I, I think Aston, if they're going to be honest and stop wasting time blaming other people for things that they can't control, um, I, I think they're going to have to look at the fact that they maybe have less knowledge 
of the flat uh, the flat car concept, the low rate car concept, and that has just made it a little bit more difficult for them to develop their way out of these changes. And when you see they brought a new aero package for to evaluate on one car back to back against the other in in Portimao, Lance Stroll running with Flovis paint in FP3, which just goes to show they have a knowledge gap they're trying to fill. And I think that at least that was a sign that they're trying to address it productively rather than just, you know, vomiting complaints into the internet <laughs> echo chamber. Relatively graphic way to describe it, but not unfair. Absolutely. Uh, and let's end with Alfa Romeo. No points this weekend, but Kimi Raikkonen, as we said, one of the, the few drivers, one of already two drivers to one stop his way through this race. But the only driver to start on the medium tyre, the only driver not to start on the soft compound, uh, his teammate... Antonio Giovinazzi was, he did start on the soft, but looked likely to try a different strategy as well when he pit behind the early safety car for Yuki Tsunoda, but had a fairly catastrophic pit stop problem with a flat tyre before he even put it on. Didn't even have a chance to puncture it himself. Uh, are you surprised more drivers didn't try opening this race with a different strategy, considering when everyone does the same thing at a track like Spain, uh, you tend to get a, a fairly predictable result? Yeah, I was very surprised by that. Now, Alpha. Um, historically, or certainly over the past couple of years, has has been a team with a slightly greater appetite for risk in its race strategies, and and one that almost as a matter of policy puts its drivers on opposing strategies to you know try and extract the maximum from each race, and putting putting Kimi on on a harder tire and expecting him to go quite far into the race and do one stop. It it was an it was an interesting strategy. It's one that's worked before in Spain. It's it's the strategy that um, Alpine almost defaulted to when it was Renault over the past couple of seasons, and certainly in, in the phase when it was particularly struggling with car developments. And it was almost race in race out doing that. It defaulted to the long first stint to capture track position, and then just try and hold on, dig in and hold on. And that appeared to be what Alpha was trying to do with Kimi. And it kind of worked to begin with because he got into the top 10, but then he drifted back because the the soft tyre just wasn't capable of lasting that long. And you would think that with the running they'd had, they would have known that that was the way it was going to pan out. The the other interesting thing, of course, was the early pit stop for the the driver known to the many tens of listeners to Sky Sports F1 as Joe Venazzi. Um, (laughs) He he and both Williams drivers pitted during the safety car period. A little bit of a no-brainer uh, if, if you're going to th- adopt a, a risky position. I was I was surprised to an extent to see both Williams pitting at that point. They they weren't really kind of splitting their options. They're really putting their coat down on on that on that strategy there. But I I think possibly that that would have worked slightly better if of course. The one of Giovinazzi's uh, tires hadn't popped its valve out or suffered a valve failure and, and already begun deflating uh, as, as they were carrying it out to stick it on the car. Uh, well, well played by the Alpha um, pit crew to identify the problem and remedy it as, as soon as they could. And obviously, the, the safety car being out that reduced the damage done by, by the problem. But um, yeah, I, I thought. It, it, it was an interesting strategy. Neither of them ended up working, but um, you know, fair play to them for trying it. it. 
it kind of shows a team that isn't very confident in its car and is having to use strategy and kind of throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what sticks, which maybe isn't the the underpinnings of long-term success. But if they're happy to do that and it entertains us, <laughs> um, then I'm all for it. But it's, it's a shame that they do it with Kimmy because, of course, you know, it, it cleaves to the, the narrative that, um, you know, he's sort of turning into a bit of a Ricardo Patrese and is the, the, the journeyman of the squad that just sort of does a tidy job with with whatever's done with, without any fireworks. But um, if anyone's going to make a strategy like that work, it's him. You know, silky touch, great driver. And hopefully we'll see some more success from him in that team in the next couple of races with some ambitious strategies. Now, before we let you go, Stuart, we're, of course, powered in this part of the season by Heel Tread, socks inspired by iconic cars. And as part of that sponsorship, you get a free pair of socks, not me. But you, and you didn't even know before I invited you on. So that's good to know. It makes me feel a bit better. Uh, what pair did you pick and what inspired you to pick that choice? Well, I have to say, I, you know, I, I generally don't get paid appearance fees for things. So <laughs> to actually to, to be offered a pair of socks, I thought was a highly generous offer. And and I, I love perusing this website. If, if I'm honest, you know, I, I go, I, I obey what's known in the cycling fraternity as as the Goldilocks principle, which which is that socks should be neither too short nor too long, and and mm. some of these socks are a little bit on the long side. However, what a fascinating um, collection! I, I was very tempted by the the the, the Sauber. Um, is it the C nine? Um, mm. In fact, I was I was all, also tempted by the Golf GTI, where they're um, that that the. the, the the patterning is 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 like the seat trim in the Mark One Golf GTI. I'm not sure my wife would have worn that um, particularly well, but she's going to hate even more the ones I've actually picked, which is the E30 BMW, which is the the stripy um, M M Technic look. Um, how how can anyone look at um, a BMW uh, of that vintage and not say I'll have a pair of socks in that colour? <laughs> I'm sure that's what they were thinking when they designed it as well. It's all about the merchandise now, never about the product itself. Uh, an excellent choice, uh, whatever the reasons were that you reached it. Uh, they're all valid, and uh, no one should question them ever. Your choice of socks. Uh, so thanks very much to Heel Tread as well. I hope you enjoy them. They'll be on the way to you shortly. And Stuart. Terrific to wrap up a more interesting than expected Spanish Grand Prix and certainly an interesting chapter in the 2021 championship. Yeah, and if, and if, if this is what the boring Grand Prix of the year can offer, then <laughs> you know the, the, the ones that are usually exciting, I, I hope we can have a sort of a, a, a similar uplift even that. You know, there's, there's some, going to be some heart stoppers in, in prospect. <laughs> Mercedes has certainly settled well into the role of being the hunter when it's needed to this season. And with three wins from four and a car that's in a happier place than it was in March, it feels like momentum is now firmly with the defending championship winning team. Thanks very much to Stuart Codling from GP Racing Magazine for joining me. The Strategy Report is supported by Heeltread, socks inspired by iconic cars. Go to heeltread.com and use the code word STRATEGY for a 10% discount. Make sure you never miss an episode of the F1 Strategy Report by subscribing with Google, Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll be back next week to preview the Monaco Grand Prix.